Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking about the Texas legislature, aka our state government. As I've mentioned on this podcast before, the Texas legislature only meets every other year, during odd-numbered years, for an 140-day session. And this most recent regular Texas legislative session officially ended on May 29th. But that's not the end of the story. (laughs) Because the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, has the power to call the lawmakers back for additional special sessions. Each special session can last no more than 30 days, but the governor can pretty much call an unlimited number of them. Now, another thing to know about special sessions is that they focus on a particular topic or topics that the governor decides on. So it's not like any and all bills can be passed just ones that are related to the governor's priorities that he laid out for that special session. Okay, so why am I telling you all that? (laughs) Because it seems like we might be in for several special sessions this year. Right now, at the time of this recording, which is on Wednesday, June 21st, there's a special session going on related to property tax reduction. And later on this summer, Governor Greg Abbott has threatened to call back legislators for even another special session. And that one would be dedicated to school vouchers, which, depending on which political party you're listening to, sometimes called school choice, education savings accounts, parental rights programs, or school voucher scams. Um, But the general idea here is just that uh, to create a program that would allow parents who opt out of public schools to use some amount of public dollars to pay for private school. And it's a top priority of Governor Greg Abbott, who said in May that, quote, empowering parents to choose the best educational path for their child remains an essential priority this session, end quote. But historically, school vouchers have been a non-starter for a coalition in the Texas House of both Democrats and rural Republicans. So much so that this past session, the Texas House rejected an effort by the Texas Senate to get school vouchers passed by adding them onto a bill that the House had originally proposed, called HB 100. And this bill included salary increases for teachers and more school funding. But as the Texas Tribune reported, Representative Ken King, a Republican, wrote in a press release that, quote, I am truly sorry HB 100 did not pass. But in the end, I believe students, teachers, and schools are better off with the current law than they would be if we accept what the Senate is offering. The governor likes to threaten special sessions. Well, my opinion is that I stand ready, end quote. So, (laughs) to dive a little deeper into both of these topics, let's bring on our guest for today's show, Texas State Representative James Tallarico, who represents Texas House District 50, which is located in the Austin area. Now, Representative Tallarico is a Democrat, as are most of the members of the legislature representing the Austin area, and he's also a former teacher. I was lucky enough to have a few minutes to catch up with him about this past legislative session, and what's still to come. So in this interview you're about to hear, he's going to share some of his viewpoints on some of these key issues that I mentioned. And hopefully throughout the summer, we'll be able to bring on a few more state-level lawmakers to fill you in on the latest and let you know how new laws passed by the legislature will be impacting us right here in Austin. But because there's a lot to cover, (laughs) this interview just scratches the surface on all of the many topics and all of the many viewpoints covered this session, but hopefully it will be a good start um, to give you an idea about what's been going on. Okay, so anyway, without further ado, let's listen in on that interview I recorded with Representative James Tallarico. 
All right, I am here with Representative James Tallarico. We are talking about the Texas legislative session right now. Um, so let's just let's just start at a high level. For you, what were some of your highlights from this session? So some bills that uh, passed or made good progress on that you're you're proud of and you want to talk about? Yeah, well, first, thank you for for having me on. I'm a big fan of the work that that y'all do and often get a lot of my updates uh, from your Instagram page. So uh, it's it's an honor to be be chatting with you. Um, so, you know, there, uh, there were a lot of bad bills that passed in this legislative session, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But I think it's helpful to start with the silver lining. Um, and, you know, part of what I have to do as a as a Democratic state rep in a Republican dominated legislature is you know, not only fight against bad bills and dangerous bills, but also do what I can to gain bipartisan support for good bills that will actually help people. And I'm really proud that my team and I in this last session were able to pass um, a bill that would allow Texans to, to import cheap prescription drugs from Canada. You know, Texans pay twice as much for their prescription drugs as anyone else in the industrialized world. And so this will directly um, allow citizens to to gain access to to cheaper prescription drugs. I also passed a bill with my Republican colleagues to provide property tax relief to child care centers around the state of Texas. You know, early childhood is is probably the most important thing we could work on as a legislative body. 85% of brain development occurs before the age of three, and yet child care is now more expensive than college. And so this property tax relief will provide much needed funds for child care centers around the state and, and hopefully will make child care more affordable for working families across Texas. So those are two bills that I'm, I'm really proud of and, um, and I think will make a big difference in the lives of working people in our state. Yeah. And I think another one um, I, I saw, I was looking through your, your Twitter feed, um, something about uh, insulin prices. That's right. So I'm a type one diabetic. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was 28 uh, on my first campaign uh, for the legislature. I was doing a walk across my district and um, was walking 25 miles across the length of my district and holding town halls along the way. And in the middle of that walk, I started to feel fatigued and nauseous. I ended up after the walk was over sleeping for 36 hours straight. And my parents rushed me to the emergency room and turned out that my blood sugar was 10 times the normal level. And they diagnosed me with type 1 diabetes. And it's a, it's a genetic disease. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, um, any of your lifestyle choices. Um, you know, it's just one of these things, like a lot of diseases or a lot of, you know, um, medical problems, they just kind of happen. And I walked out of the hospital with this new disease. I went to Walgreens to, to get my first 30-day supply of insulin, this new medication that I now need to live. And I had to pay $684 for that 30 day supply of insulin. And I did not have that kind of money, still don't have that kind of money. So I put it on a credit card, which is what a lot of Texans have to do. So in my uh, second session in 2021, I worked with Republicans to pass a bill that would cap insulin copays in Texas at $25 per prescription. And I'm, I'm proud that that bill passed and was signed by the governor. And in this session, I worked with Senator Charles Perry, a Republican from the Panhandle, to pass legislation that will crack down on insulin price gouging. Because the reason insulin is so expensive is that it's a monopoly. Three 
uh, pharmaceutical companies control the global insulin market and they can fix prices. They can um, insulate themselves from competition. They can do this thing called evergreening where they, they put up all these new patents around their original patent to make it last longer. Anyway, the bill we passed would crack down on those practices and would ensure that um, these, these companies selling insulin to Texans have to disclose uh, what market manipulation they're engaged in. And hopefully the attorney general in our state can start to go after them. Yeah. And then back to the um, you know, prescription drugs from Canada piece, explain that a little bit more. Was it what illegal before for Americans to try and drop, buy drugs from Canada, prescription drugs from Canada? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that um, uh, that we know is that Texans pay so much more for their their medicine than folks in other countries. And that's because big pharma has a stranglehold on the American market and there is no competition. So it's not really a market at all. And so what our bill will allow is for Texas to import wholesale ah. prescription drugs from Canada and, and bring them directly to pharmacies. So this is not a a mail order program. This is not an individual purchasing these drugs from other country. This is Texas as a state. This is going through our health and human services department. It's allowing them to import wholesale these drugs that that are used every day by Texans. So EpiPens, um, blood pressure medications, cancer drugs. And the estimates are that if we do this, um, we could save 60 to 70% on the cost of these commonly used prescription drugs. So this this could be a game changer. Uh, it passed unanimously out of the House and Senate. It was signed by the governor. And so now our Health and Human Services Commission has to set up this program, get it approved by the FDA, and then we can start bringing these cheaper drugs into our state, which will ultimately save lives. Wow. Okay. So like you, like you said, you know, we're going to be talking about some of the more controversial bills in a bit here, (laughs) but I think it is interesting to hear that. Like, you know, I think the way sometimes you hear about it on the news is that there's absolutely no bipartisan work happening at all in the ledge. So something is happening at least sometimes. (laughs) That's right. You know, and I, I think that's really important is the, the big dangerous bills that get passed through the Republican majority are the ones that get all the headlines, right? The anti-trans bill, um, you know, the the permitless carry bill, the, bo- the abortion ban that passed last session. And those get attention for good reason. They're going to hurt a lot of people, particularly our marginalized neighbors. Uh, but I, I just want people to know that there are thousands of bills that get passed by the legislature every session. And the vast majority are not controversial. The vast majority have bipartisan support. Um, a lot of them pass unanimously. And so there are good things that are happening. Um, it's just unfortunate that we have to spend so much of our precious legislative time on these culture war bills that are just designed to hurt people and score political points in the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's move into some of the more controversial bills. One, sure. um, you know, top of mind for me too, just like what's happening right now, which is the... Um, property taxes, right? So right now we're like still kind of in a special session. I know the house adjourned um, as we're recording this right now. And um, this is, 
tied to property taxes. It's also tied to education. I know you were you were a former teacher, right? So That's I'm right. sure this is of an important issue, but it's right. so, so confusing. Like, can you just give us a little bit of a descriptor? Like, where are yeah. we at right now? What is being debated and discussed about property taxes in schools? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I understand why it's confusing because it's a real technical policy topic and it's very much in flux. So I can tell you what's being kind of discussed by the different people involved, but there has has not been a final decision, a final compromise, a final bill. So things are still still um, going to change as we mm-hmm. move through this process. So um, there's a recognition that property taxes are um, are skyrocketing in our state. You know, I've got folks in my district uh, in 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 the Austin area who have been living in their homes for 20 or 30 years and are now being priced out because mm-hmm. of rising property taxes. And, and that's a, a huge issue when it comes to affordability and, and to equity in our community. And so we have to do something about property taxes. But before we can find a good solution, we should, also, we should be able to diagnose the, the problem. And the problem is that our state government has systematically defunded public education. And you're, you're probably thinking, what's the connection between education and property taxes? Well, property taxes are the main way we pay for our public schools. Local communities raise property tax revenue to pay for the schools that, that our kids attend. And, and so schools can get their revenue f- from the state government and from their local property taxes. And when the state government decreases their funding for our local public schools, it means that local communities have to increase their property taxes to make up for it. It's kind of like a seesaw. When one goes down, the other one goes up. And the Republican majority in our state legislature for the past two decades has continued to shrink its funding for public education, meaning that local communities have had to make up the difference with rising property taxes. So I think that's really important because a lot of these proposals to provide property tax relief are, are good proposals, but they're not solving that root problem. Mm. If we really wanted to do something about property taxes, the state should increase its share dramatically of public education, because that's what's really going to solve the problem in the long term. But since they're not willing to do a long-term comprehensive solution, they're looking at band-aids. So let me just quickly tell you the band-aids that are being discussed. You know, One is, is something called property tax compression, which is essentially when the state pays uh, local communities to buy down or lower their property tax rate. The second is a homestead exemption. Most of the folks or anybody who owns a home will know what, what an exemption is, but the, the proposals being discussed are essentially increasing the amount that you can exempt. So increasing the amount of the homestead exemption. Right. And a homestead exemption, one, I'll just I'll just clarify real quick for yeah. people that are not familiar, right? This is that idea that say your home is worth, you know, $400,000, that um, there's some dollar amount that is taken off of that value. So the state or the city or whatever, for property tax purposes, will pretend almost like your house is worth X amount less, $50,000 left, $25,000 left. So they're talking about increasing that, I think maybe to 100,000 or something. That's correct. $100,000 homestead exemption, $100,000 homestead exemption is what's being discussed. And then the last is appraisal caps, which is um, essentially just limiting the amount that your appraisal can increase. And so these three, again, Band-Aid solutions are, are attacking the problem from, from three different angles. And there are, 
there are benefits and drawbacks to all three. Um, I imagine that the final uh, compromise will be a combination of those three, compression, homestead exemption, and, and appraisal caps. Now, I, I also want to say that the last big problem with this approach is that we are leaving out half of our state because half of our state rent. They don't own their property. They don't own their home. More than half of the people in my community, in my district, rent. And so any of these three Band-Aid proposals don't help renters. Now, they may say, you know, this applies to businesses, applies to landlords, and they'll pass on the savings to their their tenants. I don't <laughs> I don't trust that to be the case. Um, mm. I don't I don't think a lot of landlords, there may be some good landlords out there that'll do that, but not in any kind of systematic way across the board. So we're leaving out half the people in our state because they don't own the property that they live in. So again, while you know I understand the need for these band-aid solutions and I think there's some value and I'll I'll end up supporting any relief that my constituents can get, I do just want to make sure folks know that if if we're not increasing the state's share of education funding and if we're not doing something for renters, we're not we're not passing a comprehensive fix to the problem of property taxes. Right. I mean, what would a comprehensive fix look like in in your eyes? I mean, it sounds like the compression one, I understand maybe it's not comprehensive, but in some ways is applying state dollars to public education, more state dollars to public education, right? Or not really? No, that's right. Um, you know, except it's doing it by by still shrinking the, the overall pie, okay. right? Um, because you're not providing new funding, you're supplanting funding. Um, okay. So gotcha. Although it is so, so although it is the state providing money to school districts, it's not new money. It's not an increase in the total amount of money, which is which is the heart of the problem. Um, so, you know, the worry with compression is that you're you're going to handcuff local school districts that are trying to raise more revenue for their kids and for their teachers. Um, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but this is the context for this discussion is important. We have a $33 billion budget surplus as a state, which is unprecedented. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's, <laughs> yeah. And I just clarify, I said billion with a B. Yeah. So this is a, a ton of money. And there have been no, no, there's been no progress in using that $33 billion to provide new resources for our schools or our teachers. You know, we have a historic teacher shortage in our state right now. We got educators leaving the profession at a record rate. And we have not, as a state, provided any kind of teacher pay increase during this last legislative session, even though we have $33 billion. So, you know, this property tax discussion is important, but it, it, people need to understand it in the context of our state government continuing to defund our public schools and dismantle our public education system. These things are very much tied together and they have to be understood as a whole. Yeah, I mean, my understanding um, is that a lot of the some of the reason why we didn't end up giving more money to teachers or to school funding was kind of because of this debate over like school voucher programs. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. So the state house, you know, we for those still learning about the legislature, we got a bicameral system. We got a state house and a state senate. Um, the state house, which, which is where I serve passed a bipartisan school finance bill that would have increased school funding and provided money for teacher pay raises. It went over to the Senate and the Senate decided to hold that bill hostage in an effort to pass their 
voucher scams. And for those who don't know what a voucher scam is, it's, it's any effort to divert precious taxpayer dollars away from public schools and give them to unaccountable private schools. And these kind of voucher scams have been proposed for you know more than 50 years. I think the first one was in 1957, right after the Brown v. Board education decision uh, in order to allow white kids to try to escape uh, integrated schools. So these voucher scams have a troubling, oftentimes racist history in our state. And they're, they're trying to make a comeback. Uh, and in order to pass them, the state Senate and the governor is, is holding teacher pay raises and public education funding hostage. Right. And this is an issue, you know, the Democratic Party has really taken on to fight back against. Um, you know, I think people have seen a lot of the arguments. But just to recap again, like why, why does the Democratic Party and you feel so strongly that school vouchers are a bad idea? Well, I feel very strongly. And as you mentioned before, before, you know, before I ran for office, before I was a politician, I was a middle school teacher and I taught in an under-resourced public school in one of the poorest neighborhoods in our state. And so I saw firsthand the consequences of not providing adequate resources for our kids and our teachers. Um, so this is personal to me. And honestly, I would not be here if it wasn't for public education. I was born to a single mom in East Austin who didn't get to go to college. And the only reason I went to UT and Harvard is because of our local public schools. So this is very personal for me and for a lot of people. Um, voucher scams, like I said, they, they take away these precious taxpayer dollars away from our public schools, which are already resource strapped. You know, Texas is 43rd in the nation in per pupil education funding. So we're, we're taking the, these, these precious dollars away from public schools and giving them to unaccountable private schools. And I don't have a problem with private schools, but we should be very clear that private schools do not have to provide transportation or buses. They can reject any student for any reason they want. Um, and they do not have to follow any of the state testing and accountability requirements. Um, so this is, and none, we don't have any input on what a private school teaches or how they operate. In a public school, all of us, whether you have kids or not, can vote on school bonds, vote for school board members, or run for school board ourselves. We also have transparency measures. We can attend school board meetings and see what's going on. You can't do any of that in a private school. And so it's a, it's a, it's a huge problem when you're talking about diverting and draining our public schools uh, in order to help these private schools, which oftentimes are only serving the wealthiest families in our state. If you look at you know, Arizona and, and other states that have tried this, these voucher scams end up going to kids and families that are already in private schools. So you're just subsidizing some of the wealthiest people uh, going to some of the wealthiest private schools. Uh, last thing, I'll, last problem I'll mention is that most of the time these these voucher scams are are pouched um, in slogans like school choice or mm -hmm. or parental rights or educational freedom, these really lofty sounding slogans. But most of the time, these vouchers are only $8,000, $9,000. That's not going to cover the full cost of tuition at most private schools in our state. And so if a working family thinks they're going to take advantage of this and they get $8,000 and they go to a local private school where the tuition is $20,000 a year, they're going to they're be you know, on the hook to pay the rest of the tab, which they usually can't. So these things aren't about educational freedom. They're not about choice. Um, they're essentially just a way to, to help millionaires and billionaires send their kids to the elite private schools in our state. 
Um, and it's and it's a huge problem for our system. Right. And, and thinking about bipartisanship, my understanding, too, is actually it's not just, you know, the Democrats that are opposed to this, but also there have That's been right. a chunk of rural Republican uh, lawmakers, right. right, who also are opposed to a voucher. That's program. right. That's right. Because public schools are oftentimes the heart of our rural communities. You know, I represented Taylor, Texas um, in my first two terms. And, you know, that that community is a classic small town, like like thousands of small towns across our state. And the local school is not just a school. It's the largest employer. And it's also a community hub. Right. Um, and Texans, especially rural Texans, love their public schools. Um, there is nothing more Texan than Friday Night Lights. Right. right? <laughs> and so. So, yes, voucher scams have been defeated in the past by a coalition of of urban and suburban Democrats and rural Republicans. That coalition stayed united in the last session, but the governor has has threatened to call us all back for a special session this fall to try to pass this voucher scam again. And I hope and pray that that bipartisan coalition for our public schools will stay united and stay strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to shift gears slightly and talk about uh, local control. So yeah. um, this is another issue comes up pretty much every legislative session for Austin. You know, the legislature often, um, you know, is fighting with some of the things that our local city leaders are passing. And I know that this year, this thing that's been dubbed like the Death Star Bill passed around local control. Can you describe for people what that is? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I should say I I trust local communities to do what's best for themselves and their constituents. Um, I trust local officials to do what's best. And I, for one, do not want the Texas legislature to become the city council of Texas or the school board of Texas. Um, Republicans, once the party of limited government, are now systematically attacking local officials and local control attacking basic self-governance and our state's core small-D democratic values. Um, So these bills are are part of a crusade by the Republican Party to kneecap blue cities in particular, like Austin, and prevent them from enacting laws that local constituents voted for, um, but but these Republicans disagree with. Uh, So the most prominent of, of these is that a bill that was kind of dubbed the Death Star, um, which will not allow local governments to have laws more strict than the states in several areas, including labor and environment. So, for instance, and this is important given how hot it is outside, um, local some local communities in our state have passed ordinances that require construction workers to have a certain number of water breaks throughout the day where they've their their boss has to let them go drink some water and cool off um, before they can go back to work. Seems like a pretty reasonable, common sense um, human rights policy. Um, now, cities in the state that have enacted those kind of water break ordinances can no longer do so because the state just preempted those policies. The state just intervened and um, and and it's preventing local communities from enacting those kind of labor standards. So it's, it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, you know, we fought this bill tooth and nail 
but you know, without the votes to to defeat it, and without any points of order to to try to kill the bill, um, it ultimately passed and is now law. Yeah. So, does that mean that for cities, you know, like Austin, does have a lot of these kind of ordinances that are already in place that they would be no longer that we have That's to right. get rid of them? That's correct. Yeah, and it's it's just again, you know, the Republican Party used to be all about local control. That was their song for decades. And so they are, they've completely walked back that value and, um, and are now for big government at its worst. Um, yeah, and I, you know, it, this attack on Austin is just infuriating because Austin has been a huge economic generator for our state. Republicans like to brag on the Texas economy. Well, Austin is a huge part of that. Um, we, we generate you know, so much economic growth for the rest of the state and then to be treated like this by our state leaders is, is maddening. And that was Representative James Tellerico. And that's pretty much our show today. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or by following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based right here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin, so thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>